Come on, let's give God some praise for the choir. Amen. Very quickly, would you join me in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 22? 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 22 is our text for this morning. The Old Testament book of 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 22. But it says, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Amen. You may be seated. I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men, outnumbered in the situation. That's what I've called this text as we unfold it in the rest of the chapter, outnumbered in the situation. We can remember at least probably around the second or third grade, maybe the first, when we began to learn what they call the five elements of a story. In language arts, they start to teach us what particulars to look for in a story because it helps us identify the various elements and it helps bring to pass what a story is composed of. Number one, a setting. Every story has to have a setting, a place in which this particular issue takes place. Number two, every story has to have characters. Someone's going to be in the story to make the story come alive. Number three, every story generally has a problem. Something has arisen and those characters are the ones who are playing out this problem and we need to work to try to make it come to pass. Number four is events. As those problems occur, they occur in the inside of events that takes place either between people themselves or individual themselves in a context where that becomes an issue. And of course, finally is a solution. Hopefully every problem that we see in the story, we eventually identify what the solution of the story can be. When I look at this story as we're continuing to examine the life of Elijah, when we pick it up from verse 20 all the way to verse 36, all of those elements take place. The setting, of course, is Elijah is back in Jerusalem. The characters, of course, is Elijah, Ahab, and a hidden character, Jezebel, along with Obadiah, is in the story. The problem is this, that a king has made a decision to go against the will of God and to lead the people away from serving God. And as a result, they are no longer worshipers of Yahweh, but they have now become worshipers of Baal. 
and the king is the ring leader of the issue. He has created such a problem that God sends judgment through the words of the prophet Elijah by creating a drought for three years that no rain will come at all. We learned that a little earlier as we got into the early portions of the story, the events we have seen unfold in tremendous ways. Elijah is the central person because Elijah seems to be isolated all by himself. Remember when the story began, when the famine began or the drought began, Elijah is sent to another place by the brook Cherith, and there he is fed by a raven by morning and by day and by night. He then moves to a city with a woman from Zarephath who once again meets his need. And then Elijah, through the prophet Obadiah, eventually makes it clear that he wants to see Ahab again. And now he is before Ahab. And what makes this story so interesting is that as the story unfolds, the narrative gets strange. Strange things starts to happen. And I identify it by looking at episodes. Episode number one, and I thought it's quite interesting. When we look at verses 17 through 20 of chapter 18, this episode is strange because Ahab ends up following the instructions of Elijah. Now that's strange to me because Ahab blames Elijah for all of his problems. He blames Elijah that there's no rain in the city. He blames Elijah that there is a famine in the city and nothing is growing from the ground because we don't have rain. And if you're blaming Elijah, why would you even follow the direction of Elijah? Why would you even seek to listen to what he has to say if you felt that Elijah was the center of your problem? And to make matters worse, remember, Ahab sought to kill Elijah. He sent out folk, went from town to town, and told folk in the various towns, make sure you tell me the truth, because if I find out that you know where Elijah is and you haven't told me the truth, I will come back and kill you. In fact, Obadiah is highly concerned when Elijah asked him to go tell Ahab because he said, if you tell me that you want to meet Ahab and you don't show up, I'm the one who's going to pay the price. And yet Ahab meets Elijah. And when you read the text, it says it this way in verse 20. It says, Ahab sends a message among all the sons of Israel and he brought the prophets to Mount Carmel. Now, Elijah says, meet me at Mount Carmel because I am going to settle an issue. Ahab believes that Elijah is the reason for his struggle and yet he obeys what Elijah tells him to do. Now, I don't know about you, but if I feel like you're the center of my problem, the last thing I'm about to do is take advice from you in terms of what I should do as a next move. And verse 20 says that Ahab followed the direction of Elijah. He didn't compromise. He didn't debate. He merely followed Elijah's direction. That's a strange episode. That's episode number one. Episode number two gets stranger. 
Elijah then turns to the people. Elijah turns to the people and he begins to address them because they have both a spiritual and a physical issue. They have a physical issue because there's a famine in the land, there's no more growth in terms of provision and they are weakening and probably near death. They have a spiritual issue because they've turned their backs on God and they are now wondering, did they make the wrong decision by following the direction of Ahab? In fact, Elijah comes to them in verse 21 and raises a critical question. He says, how long will you keep limping between two opinions? He is challenging them to remember that life is about choices. It's about the decisions that you decide to make. The Israelites are dancing at the command of someone you don't even see in the text. She is behind the scene. Her name is Queen Jezebel. She calls the shots, not Ahab. I think I told you before, Ahab is just a puppet on the string. But Jezebel calls the shots. You read the text, it'll tell you that Jezebel was the one who killed the prophets of the Lord. And Obadiah had to go and save some to make sure that all of the prophets would not be destroyed by her, but she's the one who makes the call. In fact, as Elijah comes before the people, he wants to know, are you really afraid of the shot caller, Jezebel, or are you just afraid to admit that I made a bad choice by defying God and adhering to the words of Jezebel? Some of us are like that now. We're in a space that we're struggling because we know we made a bad choice. And the choice we made was to go against what the word of God had to say. But watch this. Elijah says, your limping is stemming from your indecisiveness to walk. You could change where you are if you wanted to, but you are, as old folks say, you are straddling the fence. You have yet decided to make a decision that I need to decide where I'm going to go from this point forward. Here's a first principle that Elijah is trying to teach us in the text. And that is that life's episodes are life's tools to cause us to make choices. Everybody has got to make a choice. You've got to decide what you're going to do. All of the biblical characters had to make a choice. Joseph, in all of his circumstance, had to decide, does his brothers have the last will? Does Potiphar's wife has the last word? Or do I stand and trust the word that God has given me through the years and continue to believe that even though now the sun may not be shining as bright as I desire, 
there is a God who controls the son and because God controls the son, he will never leave me nor forsake me and even though now it looks like I'm on the wrong side of the equation, hold on, don't count me out because God has a way of working all things together for the good and what looks like I'm failing actually is God building me up in a very strange and powerful way and Elijah is telling the people of God stop dancing between two opinions and then he says if God be God then follow God if Baal be Baal then follow Baal now the question is who's the Lord of your life who's running your show who actually is the one that you recognize is your provision every single day if it's your job, then serve your job. But if it's the God you believe who blessed you to be where you are, then give that worship and time and inspiration unto God and let God be the God of your life. Here's what the issue was. Some wanted to come back to God because they realized they had made a critical mistake by leaving God and following Ahab. Then there were others who wanted to come back but they were too scared because Jezebel has made it clear in her actions, leave me if you wanna, there is a price to be paid. And they did not know if I left Jezebel and went back to God, here it is, could God protect me from the challenge of Jezebel? And God would make it clear that he is the God of all and that's where Elijah raises the point if God be God, trust him as God. And some wanted to return because they realized now that Baal couldn't actually make it rain. They thought that leaving God to go to some other God that they felt could make it rain, now they realize it's been three years and no rain has come to us at all. Fearing that empirical power, Elijah posed the clear remedy make a choice and one reason why you are stuck where you are is because you won't make a choice even if you fail in making a choice make a choice but to do nothing but just to hang out and just not knowing what to do or just merely deciding not to do anything you will never see a change and your spiritual and your natural condition will only remain the same because you refuse to make a choice. Jesus said it this way in Revelation chapter 3. I, I wish you were either hot or cold, but I don't handle lukewarm people. You are either going to be with me or you're going to be against me. Elijah says, make a choice. But Elijah says, if you really want something to help you make your choice, look at your past history with God and look at your past history with Baal. Baal hadn't made it rain in the last three years, but God may not have allowed the rain to come, 
but God has given you some mercy the last three years and some grace the last three years and some goodness the last three years and God has allowed your life to roll on and even when danger was all around you and you had no idea that danger was there, he dispatched some protection to make sure that you wasn't hurt. I'm just saying, says God, take a look at what I've done for you and what some other folk have done for you and let the evidence speak for themselves. Make a choice, says Elijah. Why halt you between two opinions? If God is God, follow God. And if Baal is Baal, follow Baal. Either way, says Joshua, choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, because every morning when I wake up, I recognize who made my house possible. Every day when you get through the course of the day, you got to recognize who made that day possible. If you go out and you come back in still whole, you got to recognize who kept you and protected you through the course of the day. If you were able to eat something from the table, you got to recognize who put that on the table. If you're able to drive down the dangerous highways and get back home safe, you got to ask yourself a question, who got me? It could be some safe driving techniques, but there were some angels all around me who kept danger away from me. And I'm just saying, get up in the morning with a proud dignity saying, Lord, to whom all blessings flow, I just want to thank you for this day because you've been that good. You deserve every praise that I have to give. And I'm just going to wave my hand in the air and know I don't care who see me give him the glory but I'm going to say Lord I just thank you for one more day I don't have to wrestle between two opinions I already know from whom all blessings flow I made my choice I'm going with the Lord God almighty who woke me up this morning and started me on my way here's something strange in the text when Elijah posed the question to them, the Bible says at the end of verse 21, the people didn't say a word. They continued in their space of indecisiveness while Elijah was trying to provoke in them a revoke against Baal. They said nothing. Maybe, let's give them a little room, maybe, they were contemplating maybe Elijah's on to something and we might need to think about it. Here it is, sometimes when grown folk, older folk, they tell you things before it even happened, you go for them to advice and you tell them, they tell you, I wouldn't do that if I were you because X, Y, Z, and you decide, they don't know what they're talking about. They're old and this is a new day. We do things differently now. And you go out and do what you wanted to only to discover that the consequence ends up the very way that they told you and you go back to them. Boy, I tell you, ain't nothing like having to have to go back to them with your tail tucked between your legs and you know you got to suck it up and tell them you were right and I was wrong and maybe they are contemplating Elijah might be on to something. And we might need to think about this thing. Elijah was trying to help them understand life in its course is nothing more than tests to help you recognize 
you've got to make a choice. And you've got to make a choice on many different levels in life. It's a part of living. There's a second thing about the text that I see in reference to life. And that is that life can test your commitment by having circumstances place you at odds. There you are back at verse 22. When I think it's amazing that Elijah, after telling them, why y'all wrestling between two opinions? Make a choice. Then he paints a picture. I alone, a prophet of the Lord, is standing here against the 450 prophets of Baal. Now, he knew that he wasn't the only prophet for he had just had a conversation with Obadiah and Obadiah had told him that I have saved a hundred prophets alone so he can't be the only prophet but could it be that Elijah is suggesting that there's a psychological effect to thinking that he was the only one standing up, here it is, to Jezebel and Ahab in the minds of the rest of those who are watching. Elijah plays a mind game. Elijah says, I'm the only one against all these prophets of Baal. Look at me. I've made my choice. Can you make one? I'm the only one, and I'm hoping that this will set your mind to remember not to be intimidated by the politics or the cruelty of Ahab and Jezebel. Elijah is saying, I'm outnumbered in the situation, but watch me go to work. Because he says, sometimes God permits you to be outnumbered. You're doing the right thing, but everybody else is against what you're doing. God says, I'm going to let you be outnumbered because in doing so, you're going to have to trust me that I'm going to bring you through. And by being outnumbered, you can't depend on your own strength. Watch this. Because what Elijah is going to do is birth revival in Israel by coming to remember we have always been outnumbered. And because we've always been outnumbered, have you noticed we are still standing after being outnumbered? We have still come out victorious because God honors commitment. God honors when you stick with God. God honors when you stand on his word. God honors when you put your hand in his hand. He will bring you out when you are totally out numbered I, I just roll off of the words of Tupac just me against the world baby that's it nothing to do just me against the world because as long as I know I got God against the whole world I'm still more than a conqueror through Christ who strengthens me 
Just me against the world, baby. That's what it seems like sometimes. Everybody's against me. Everything is against me. But here I come. I keep on holding to the unchanging hand of God. And I keep on walking in victory that he gives me. And I keep on trusting that his word will come to pass. And here I come. I may look like I'm down, but I'll come back up every single time. Because greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Because I'm trusting the God who will bless me because of my commitment. Look at the text. Elijah then says something different. Here's an episode number three. And I'm done after this. Elijah says that God forces us to make decisions. That's life. Secondly, God contests us by commitment, by putting us in situations where we're outnumbered. But watch this. Thirdly, the battle interestingly, was unique that Elijah was getting ready to get into because he's trying to tell us, watch this, hear me clearly, some fights are won on your knees and not on your feet. Watch this now. The battle is unique because when you go to war in the Old Testament, you go to war on the battlefield. Look what Elijah does. Elijah invites Ahab to Mount Carmel. And you know why that's interesting and important? He doesn't invite him to the battlefield. He invites him to the altar. <laughs> Elijah knows that I can't beat Ahab and his prophets on the battlefield because I'm outnumbered. But Ahab don't know he can't beat me at the altar because he's outnumbered. Some fights, you, you're going to have to understand, some fights are not won by your fist. They're won by faith. And as I said before, some fights you got to allow to be won on your knees and not standing up on your feet. Elijah knew that if I invite him to Mount Carmel to the altar, he don't know what an altar is. Ahab ain't never been there before. What he thinks is the altar of Baal has no power, has no authority. And here's a strange thing. The altar that he invites him to was the altar that Ahab had torn down when he became king. He replaced it with an altar of Baal. So Elijah took his battle to a consecrated space because he knew on the battlefield I'm outnumbered, but at the altar I got all of heaven's glory. And what does he do? He invites him. So when you start reading from verse 23 all the way down to verse 30, that's when Elijah says, listen, because I'm in my comfort zone, I'm at the altar. Y'all missed that. Let me, let me explain that for you. The altar ought to be a comfort zone in the sense that I know I'm where my power resides. He takes him to the altar and he says, you know what? I got so much confidence and faith in my altar, I'm going to let you go first. 
But this is what he does. <clears throat> I think I'm going to talk about this a little next Sunday. This is what he does. He uses symbolic gestures to make sure that he doesn't lose his advantage. He says, you can build all the altars you want. I, I, I want you to build, take your sacrifices, get them all prepared, put them on the altar, but don't put no fire up under them. Don't put no fire under them. I'm going to do the same, but I'm not going to put any fire under them. Elijah is saying, because I'm going to use the fire to show you that God answers prayer. So Ahab begins to put his altar together along with his 450 prophets. And you read the story, it says they started to cry out all day and all night. No answer. They cut themselves as a ritual of serving Baal to draw blood. No answer. And they get to a point in the text where Elijah, it says in verse 27, begins to mock them and says, call out a little louder. Holler a little bit more. For he is a God, either he is occupied, which means that, I'm sorry, but your God can't handle two things at one time. He's occupied or he's gone on a journey or perhaps he's sleeping and needs to be awakened. I think I read for you last Sunday, didn't now God neither sleeps nor slumbers? I don't have to wake him up. He's already awoken. Look what he said. So the Bible says in verse 20, so they cried with a loud voice, cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out. And it came about when midday was passed, and they raved until the time of the offering, but there was no voice, no one answered, and nobody paid attention. I'm almost done. Elijah said, well, isn't this something? Shucks. But playtime is over. Look at verse 30. Then Elijah said, come on over here. Come over here where the big boys play at. Come over here. And the people came. But look what Elijah did. What you tore down, which was an altar of God, watch God resurrect that. Here's a principle. When people try to tear you down, don't let them think that they've torn you down. But what you do is you go to the altar of God and say, Lord, I'm broken. And watch God restore what they have attempted to break. Watch the text. The text says, verse 31, uh, verse 30, and he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. Ah, I'm a, in fact, I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to drop this principle on y'all. Some of you struggle because you try to go only new school. I'm here telling you to go back and get some of that old school. And we're right over your head. Let me see if I can break it down for you more. You need some old time religion sometimes <clears throat> to help you recognize in conjunction with your new school stuff. Uh, one of the great things I like about the modern day musicians is they sample old school music 
and yet put their twist on it at the same time. But why would they sample old school music with a new school twist? Because they see the validity and the value in the old school beat and the old school popularity. And they put that twist on it. And when they put that twist on it, everybody bumping at it. No matter what generation it is, they can all identify in the midst of that. Watch what Elijah does. He rebuilds the old altar, but he's going to baptize it in the water as he puts water all around the altar, but he's going to cry out to God, whatever you do, come down by way of fire and set this thing on fire. Because I need for them to see that even though I'm outnumbered, I'm still more than a conqueror. So he tells his folk to arrange everything the way it needs to be arranged. And Elijah even had them to baptize the altar repeatedly so that nobody can say that Elijah played a little trick on us. No, Elijah said, I want this thing drenched in water because fire can't lick up water. Okay, we might take y'all back to science then, right? Fire can't lick up water. The reason why this is called a miracle, because when God answers Elijah's prayer, fire licks up the water. <laughs> let, me, let me hurry on. I, 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 look, look, look what the text says. Let, let's, let's fast track. Let's fast track. Fast track, uh, let me see, down to verse... Uh, uh, 33, he arranged the wood, cut the ox in pieces, laid it on the wood, and said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time, a third time, and did a third time. And the water flowed around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. Then it came about at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are the God in Israel. Watch this. And that I'm your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. See, when you're outnumbered, that ain't a time for you to attack nobody. Don't retaliate. Go back in your prayer closet. Pull out the word of God and watch God supply you every scripture you need to stand in front of all of those that outnumber you and have them wondering, we've thrown every dot we had at them and they still standing because they don't recognize they're not just fighting you. They're fighting the God who's in you. And because of that, I came to tell somebody today, even when you, I don't care how often you are outnumbered, don't you dare lay down. Don't you dare throw in the towel. Don't you dare give up. Don't you dare embarrass your God by deciding that because you are outnumbered that they are more. Listen to what the Bible says. If one can put to flight a thousand, then two, ten thousand. 
Later, Elijah is going to teach his protege, Elisha, how to remember that when you are outnumbered, the Assyrian army is going to come and try to take over Israel, and Elisha is going to wonder, what are we going to do? A young prophet with him is concerned that they are outnumbered. They can see all of the Assyrian army all around them, and Elisha is going to pray, Lord, open his eyes. And the Bible says in First King, uh, Second Kings, that when he opens his eyes, he didn't just see the Assyrian army. He saw angels of the Lord all around where he was. And I just came by to tell somebody this morning, stop allowing what you see to beat you. We were talking in Sunday school this morning. The perception is powerful. The Israelites, when they went into Canaan, they said, we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. But they never said that they looked like grasshoppers. They perceived, and they said, they are larger than we are. So, if God has made you the promise, is the promise larger than the obstacle standing before you? Because you'll never find out if you're really more than a conqueror until what you have to conquer is bigger than what you are. So you're not going to just be able to jump over instantly every single obstacle there. There's got to be some mountains you've got to climb and in climbing them, they will be a struggle, but every step that you take is a step higher in the kingdom of God and in the word of God and in the power of God. And before you know, you're standing on top of the altar waiting to come down on the other side more victorious. But you've got to remember, because I'm outnumbered, doesn't mean I've lost. I close by telling you this. He was outnumbered on Friday. He's outnumbered. 